the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Brought to you in part, by the way, by Zero Res. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Annette Safstrom. She is the co-author of a book simply titled Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. And it's a great book for those who are committed to children's ministry, want to attract and re- attract rather and retain volunteers, how to do that in a way that will give you the longevity and the joy in the work of working with uh, children in ministry. So she's going to join us in the five o'clock hour. So I hope you can stick around and uh, listen to that conversation. By the way, if if there's ever a, an interview that you don't have uh, time in real time to listen to, you can always go to kpdq.com and you can check out the podcast for the day's interviews and for that matter, archived interviews from some time back. So check that out. Well, one million Americans are getting pay increases because of the tax reform package signed into law in December. Well, that's according to the Americans for Tax Reform, a group that established a running list of companies that have announced bonuses, wage hikes and charitable donations. Just just five days into 2018, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act have changed the nation for the better, they write. This is Americans for Tax Reform President Grover Norquist in a statement. American companies are raising wages, paying bonuses, expanding operations, increasing 401k contributions. The website asks for people to provide information if they are aware of other companies providing pay raises because of tax reform. President Trump and Republicans in Congress said the reform would grow the economy. Democrats argued the corporate tax cuts would not benefit employees. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she issued rather a statement Friday night, which said more than one million hardworking Americans are already or rather have already received a Trump bonus, as she referred to it, or Trump pay raise as a result of the historic tax reform package that President Donald Trump signed into law just before Christmas. President Trump said from the beginning that lowering tax rates, simplifying the complicated tax code and making our companies more competitive would be the fuel that uh, propels our economy to new heights. The preliminary results show that the president is right and American workers and families are the big winners. And this is only the beginning. The president remains focused on empowering Americans to build more prosperous lives for themselves and a brighter future for their children, end quote. Well, the new law cut the corporate tax from 39.6% to 21%. It also lowered individual rates and closed some loopholes. Among the employers to give bonuses were AT&T, which gave a $1,000 bonus to its 200000 employees, American Airlines, which gave $1,000 bonuses to 127,600 employees, BB&T Bank, which gave $1,200 bonuses to 27,000 of its employees and raised the base wage from $12 to $15 per hour, Southwest Airlines, which gave $1,000 bonus to 5,500 employees, and $5 million in charitable donations, Sinclair Broadcasting, which gave 1,000 bonuses to uh, 9,000 employees. Uh, but there is a full list uh, that you can find at the Americans for Tax Reform if you're interested. 
Meanwhile, in Friday's jobs report, black unemployment reached a record low of 6.8 percent. That's the lowest black unemployment uh, has been since the Bureau of Labor Statistics began tracking unemployment, which started in 1972, the lowest in nearly five decades and a credit to President Donald Trump's economic policies. So tweeted the White House Deputy Press Secretary Raj Shah. Trump weighed in, too. I won't bother to share that tweet. And so did the uh, new president of the Heritage Foundation, Kay Cole James, who is herself African-American. She writes, great news for African-Americans. Unemployment rates is the lowest ever. We have more work to do, but what a great way to start the new year. President Trump's Department of Homeland Security has requested $18 billion in funding to complete a wall on a portion of the U.S. southern border, a portion, mind you, uh, in an effort to stop illegal immigration. One congressional source and one U.S. official speaking to uh, NBC News said on Friday, the Wall Street Journal was the first to report the plan, which would include 316 miles of the new fencing, 407 miles of reinforcing existing fence over the next decade. Construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall was a key campaign promise of Trump's. At the time, he estimated the construction would cost about $10 billion and cover about 2,000 miles of the border. Over 350 miles of the southern border are already blocked by physical barrier. So far, the administration has struggled to secure funding to cover the 72 miles of priority areas along the border, which have been identified near San Diego and the Rio Grande Valley. Trump has um, pressured Democrats in Congress to approve the funding in exchange for allowing undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States as children and who have been protected by the Obama-era program known as DACA to remain. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat out of Illinois, the minority whip, called the $18 billion request outrageous. President Trump has said he may need a good government shutdown to get his wall. With this demand, he seems to be heading in that direction, Durbin said in a statement. He said that the administration was undercutting bipartisan efforts to help those protected by DACA with the $18 billion request and other immigration demands. The congressional source uh, indicated that that um, request is... uh, Again, being bandied back and forth as they're determining whether or not they can prevent the government from shutting down due to a lack of decision making. Well, with three strong hurricanes, wildfires, hail, flooding, tornadoes and drought, the United States tallied a record high bill last year for weather disasters, $306 billion dollars. The U.S. had 16 disasters last year with damage exceeding a billion dollars. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said on Monday that um, ties 2011 for the number of billion dollar disasters. But the total cost blew past the previous record of $215 billion in 2005. Of course, the cost of everything has gone up. Costs are adjusted for inflation, and NOAA uh, keeps track of billion-dollar weather disasters going back to the 1980s. Three of the five most expensive hurricanes in U.S. history hit last year. Hurricane Harvey cost $125 billion, second only to 2005's Katrina, while Maria cost $90 billion, uh, ranking third, according to the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, Irma was $50 billion for the fifth most expensive hurricane. Western wildfires, they fanned by, uh, that were fanned rather, by heat. Uh, They racked up $18 billion in damage, tripled the previous U.S. wildfire record, according to the same organization. Now, while we have uh, we have to be careful about knee-jerk cause-effect discussions, the National Academy of Sciences and recent Peer-reviewed literature continue to show that some of today's extremes have climate change fingerprints on them. That's a quote from University of Georgia meteorology professor Marshall Shepard, a past president of the American Meteorological Society. 
Uh, NOAA announced that its figure at the society's annual conference in Austin, Texas. The weather agency also said that 2017 was the third hottest year in U.S. records for the lower 48 states, with an annual temperature of 54.6 degrees, that's 12.6 degrees Celsius, 2.6 degrees warmer than in uh, the 20th century average. Only 2012 and 2016 were warmer. The uh, five warmest years for the lower 48 states have all happened since 2006. This was the third straight year that all 50 states had above average temperatures for the year. Five states, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and New Mexico, had their warmest years ever. Uh, Temperature uh, records go back to 1895. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we do, we're going to talk about the uh, Wolf book, which, of course, has now been widely circulated. And you can even find the entire publication online, Fire and Fury. The president has called it a work of fiction. Others are uh, also commenting, some who... uh, uh, were frustrated by his last publication, say he's not necessarily uh, really good with the facts, particularly on political things. We'll find out what they have to say. And also Bannon is expressing regret for comments attributed to him in the book and say they really weren't uh, uh, pointed toward Donald Trump's son. They were actually pointed toward Mr. Manafort, kind of a late flimsy mea culpa, but there you have it. We'll be back 16 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump on Saturday called the recently released White House expose Fire and Fury a work of fiction and said that the purported White House interviews with him exist only in the author's imagination. The president's comments followed the official release on Friday, which was uh, actually expedited from the Tuesday release that was originally planned, although it was, well, it's a whole other story. Anyway, um, the it questions uh, Trump's emotional and intellectual competence to run the Oval Office. Excerpts from the book repeated often in the uh, liberal media say sources close to the president claim he is forgetful, doesn't have the intellectual capacity to grasp and the complex policy and politics of being president. Um, Trump at uh, Camp, uh, said Trump at Camp David, uh, I went to the best colleges. I, I was a great student, made billions and billions of dollars, was one of the top business people, went into television and for 10 years was a tremendous success, as you've probably heard. Uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity, Clark, if you would like to just brag on your background in history and tell us how great you are, since that <laughs> seems to be the trend. Wow. I was raised differently that you let others praise you. But anyway... Earlier in the day, Trump hit back at the suggestion and accusation about his intellectual and emotional state by tweeting, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being like really smart, end quote. Well, now that uh, Russian collusion after one year of intense study um, has proven to be a total hoax on the American public, the Democrats and their lapdogs, the fake news mainstream media are taking out uh, the old Ronald Reagan playbook and screaming mental uh, stability and uh, intelligence, he wrote in one tweet. Now, I will say that every Republican president in my lifetime has been accused of being mentally unstable. So it's not a new accusation, although Trump does provide some um, fuel to the fire that has uh, given greater legs, I suppose, to uh, to these accusations than uh, previously. But nonetheless, it's an old uh, cry that we've heard 
with every uh, Republican administration. Meanwhile, Michael Wolff's uh, record raises some questions about the Trump tell-all. According to The Washington Times, this isn't the first time the author, journalist Michael Wolff, has been accused of fabricating quotes. Now, that's not discrediting the whole book, but fabricating quotes. A caustic gossip columnist more accustomed to taking down New York media moguls than Washington politicians, Mr. Wolff... um, trained his fire on President Trump and his inner circle in fire and fury inside the Trump White House, an incendiary tell-all that has the president and his supporters fuming. In excerpts from the book given to outlets where Mr. Wolf's byline regularly appears, The Guardian, The Hollywood Reporter, New York Magazine, and the British version of GQ, the White House is portrayed as full of disorder, backbiting, and infighting. The book relies on what Mr. Wolf, 64, describes as extensive access to the White House and more than 200 interviews with Trump and senior staff over a period of 18 months. Now, interestingly, he says he spent three hours with the president, um, although most of that time was before he was president. He was a candidate, and I think he's only spent a few moments on the phone as president, but spent a lot of time, uh, as I mentioned, more than 200 interviews with Trump uh, advisors, senior advisors over a period of 18 months. His critics contend that he has a tendency to play fast and loose with the truth, Uh, When current and former members of the Trump administration came forward to dispute the version of events presented in the book or even quotes attributed to them, Mr. Wolf said he has dozens of hours of audio recordings to back up his assertions. Well, the now defunct website Brill's Content reported in 1998 that more than a dozen people uh, said Mr. Wolf embellished or outright invented quotes attributed to them in his 1998 book about Silicon Valley. Uh, burn rate, how I survived the gold rush years on the Internet. Well, Wolf says he has notes and emails that uh, back him up, but refuses to release them. Brill's content reported at the time and is likely to say the same this time around. Writing in the pages of the New Republic in 2004, Michelle Cottle took uh, Mr. Wolf to task for exploiting artistic license in his writing, uh, saying this. And of course, um, the New Republic is not a, a conservative um, uh, screed. Much of the annoyance of Wolf's critics, this, the uh, scenes in his columns, aren't recreated so much as created, she wrote at the time, springing from Wolf's imagination rather than from actual knowledge of events, Ms. Cottle wrote. Even Wolf acknowledges that conventional reporting isn't his bag. Well, Mr. Wolf himself admitted to as much in the introduction of Fire and Fury, writing, many of the accounts of uh, what has happened in the Trump White House are in conflict with one another. Many in uh, Trumpian fact Fashion are badly untrue, or baldly untrue, rather. Uh, these uh, conflicts and uh, those conflicts and that uh, loosen, looseness with the truth, if not with reality itself, are an elemental thread of the book. Sometimes I have let the players offer their versions, in turn allowing the uh, reader to judge them. In other instances, I have, through a consistency in accounts and through resources, I have uh, come to trust, settled on a version of events I believe to be true, end quote. Well, part of the problem may be that Mr. Wolf's unfamiliarity with Washington. Ms. Cottle pointed out that Mr. Wolf is neither an insightful nor entertaining uh, writer when dissecting politics, as he is when he's writing about the, his home turf, the Manhattan media scene. She quoted one Washington media eminence who said Mr. Wolf is not anywhere near as sharp on politics. Well, several details in Mr. Wolf's account already have been revealed to be highly unlikely, as Washington insiders have been quick to point out. The author, for example, claims that Mr. Trump didn't know who former House Speaker John Boehner was when former Fox News honcho Roger Ailes suggested him as a potential chief of staff. 
I can't even imagine that, but he did make the suggestion. Mr. Trump said Mr. Boehner played golf together as recently as 2013. The president has tweeted about the Ohio Republican dozens of times, but other anecdotes in the book have held up so far. Former White House chief of strategist Steve Bannon has yet to deny calling Mr. Trump treasonous and unpatriotic or Ivanka Trump dumb as brick. Even Mr. Trump, who said Mr. Bannett had lost his mind following the revelation, appeared to believe that part of the book. So the back and forth continues, and it will affirm what many want to believe uh, that may or may not be true and um, affirm for others that uh, believe that the mainstream media uh, is only engaged in uh, fake news, as is the case with this author. So I suppose it will confirm what everyone has already decided they choose to believe. Former Trump political strategist Steve Bannon on Sunday did express regret for uh, unflattering comments attributed to him in the recently released Trump White House tell-all, Fire and Fury, saying he should have responded sooner and that he continues to support the president. My support is also unwavering for the president and his agenda, he said in a statement to Axios. Um, uh, the statement in the book attributed to Bannon, who joined the Trump presidential campaign in the closing months, were mostly critical of the president's son, Donald uh, Trump Jr., who also was a part of the campaign. Donald Trump Jr. is both a patriot and a good man, Bannon now says in the statement. He has been relentless in his advocacy for his father and the agenda that has helped turn our country around, end quote. He also said, I regret that my delay in responding to the inaccurate reporting uh, regarding Donald Jr. or Don Jr. has diverted attention from the president's historical accomplishments in the first year of his presidency, end quote. Bannon, of course, infuriated the president with comments he made to author Michael Wolff describing a meeting between Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer as treasonous and unpatriotic. Trump has... Uh, since uh, the book was officially published on Friday, repeatedly called Bannon Sloppy Steve and said he cried when the president fired him last year from the White House uh, strategist job. But Bannon, in a statement, says his description of the meeting was aimed at former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, not Trump's son. So he's uh, backpedaling from the earlier attributions of his statements. Well, Robert Mueller's special counsel probe gets most of the, the publicity these days, but another investigation involving the 2016 election is wrapping up soon and could be um, just as explosive. For the last 12 months, the inspector general of the Department of Justice has been conducting a review of the FBI and the DOJ's action, the Department of Justice actions, related to the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was secretary of state. Well, the final report on the investigation is expected within several months months, which seems a long ways away, but it'll be June before you know it. In the coming days, the Department of Justice is also expected to provide Congress with many, many more, that's a quote, many, many more records related to the review, according to the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, the investigation is looking at a variety of allegations, including whether it was improper for former FBI Director James Comey to make a public announcement about not recommending prosecution over the email arrangement. He also faulted Clinton and her associates for being extremely careless with classified information. Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz also is reviewing whether FBI Deputy Director uh, Andrew McCabe should should have recused himself from the probe early because of his family's ties to Democratic Party. He didn't uh, do so until a week before the election. Horowitz told lawmakers during a November congressional hearing that he's aiming to release the uh, report in the March-April time period. Uh, we're moving along quite expeditiously, Horowitz told the House Oversight Committee. The inspector general said his team has interviewed dozens of people, had reviewed about 1.2 million records in the course of that investigation. And Congress is... Um, 
gearing up to thumb through those documents as well. During a House Judiciary Committee hearing last month, the chairman, Bob Goodlot, he said the Justice Department has committed to turning over a large number of those records by the 15th of this month. We are moving along quite expeditiously as well. Well, the Inspector General's review uncovered the anti-Trump texts from FBI of, uh, official Peter Zorok, uh, who called Trump an idiot, texted uh, about an insurance policy against the Trump presidency. He had assigned, uh, had been assigned by rather by Robert Mueller's special counsel probe, but has since been um, reassigned. As the one-year anniversary of Horowitz's announcement of the review approaches, the inspector general says the classified information involved and uh, necessary security clearances have slowed the process. That announcement spelled out the uh, scope of the probe. On the 12th of uh, January 2016, a release from Horowitz said the review would look into allegations that the Department of Justice or FBI policies were not followed with Comey's public announcement and letters to Congress about the Clinton probe. So some things just keep uh, coming back. Uh, Hopefully they'll um, come to an end in this investigation. They'll come to some conclusion. And I don't know, I just dream of a day when Washington functions without some ongoing investigation into this or that. Unfortunately, that day is not going to arrive anytime soon. 31 minutes after um, 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. And she argues in the book that by establishing certain systems in children's ministry, you can retain your volunteers, you can achieve much greater consistency and avoid burnout, which is so common with those who serve in children's ministry. She'll be joining us uh, in the second segment of the five o'clock hour. So I hope you can join us. Well, ladies, you are invited to join 93.9 KPDQ and 1041 The Fish uh, for a fun-filled evening with the girls. Sorry, Clark. Thrive, a girls' night out is a chance for you and me and the rest of us to be refreshed and empowered to take on the new year. Experience the elegance of Gray Gable's estate, enjoy a delicious dinner, and hear encouraging stories of faith from the ladies of KPDQ and The Fish. We're talking Cat Taylor and Crystal Thornton and others. Um, uh, Thrive, it's going to be Saturday, January 27th at Gray Gable's estate in Milwaukee. Tickets are $25, but bring a girlfriend with you. $20 each. How's that? You can find out more and get your tickets at kpdq.com. We would love to see you there. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's, uh, that's coming up. Well, as I mentioned, a Justice Department official, maybe I didn't mention it, uh, official demoted late late last year uh, for concealing his meeting with the men behind the anti-Trump dossier has been stripped yet of yet another title. Uh, Bruce Orr is no longer head of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. Separately, sources familiar with the discussions uh, say that the Justice Department is expected to comply with demands from the House Intelligence Committee to provide Orr of, uh, for an interview. He's scheduled to visit the committee on the 17th. Um, it was first reported back in December that Orr had been demoted from the position of Associate Deputy Attorney General. Did I say Deputy? 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 Deputy. My mother would not have been pleased. Anyway, he was uh, demoted from the position of associate deputy attorney general after it was revealed he had conducted undisclosed meetings with dossier 
uh, author Christopher Steele and Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm that produced the uh, salacious document. Uh, at the time of his um, demotion, the Department of Justice officials said that Bruce Orr had been wearing two hats and would fall back to his other title and portfolio as head of, well, OCDETF. I'm not even going to try. Well, now he's been uh, stripped of that role as well. Former Deputy uh, Director Thomas Padden is now acting director. It's unclear where Orr has landed, only that he is still an employee with the Department of Justice. One DOJ insider joked that Orr might end up uh, in one of those offices without a phone. It's also confirmed that he, uh, as the head of OCDETF, was directly involved with Project uh, Cassandra, the interagency investigation spearheaded by the DEA that trafficked, or rather tracked, a massive international drug and money laundering scheme allegedly run by Hezbollah. Well, the project recently was the subject of a critical and lengthy political report looking at uh, how the Obama administration may have hampered that investigation. Those closest to Project Cassandra, including Derek Motz, uh, the now retired supervisory DEA agent who was a major player in that operation, claimed the project and its potential prosecutors were sidelined by senior Obama administration officials who didn't want to upset Iran in the lead up to the historic nuclear deal with Tehran in 2015. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has promised to look into what happened with that investigation. He said in a statement last month that while I am hopeful that there uh, were no barriers constructed by the last administration to allowing DEA agents to fully bring all appropriate cases under Project Cassandra. This is a significant issue for the protection of Americans. We will review these matters and give full support to investigators of violent drug trafficking organizations. Well, sources close to the attorney general say that he was uh, recently made aware of Orr's role in Project Cassandra and that Sessions is personally involved in the review and frequently uh, asked for updates uh, in that uh, case. We'll continue to follow if or as uh, there are further developments. Meanwhile, two top Republican senators have formally recommended that the Justice Department and the FBI investigate the author of the controversial dossier and the first known criminal referral from Congress as part of lawmakers' Russia probes. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham made the referral in a January 4-dated letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, that's Deputy, and FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, the move ramps up Congressional Republicans' investigation of the salacious document and those involved in creating it. And Special Counsel Robert Mueller continues to probe Russian meddling in the 2016 election and possible collusion with the Trump associates. The dossier was authored by former British intelligence agency, or agent rather, Christopher Steele, who was hired by opposition research firm Fusion GPS. In their brief letter, the, G- the GOP lawmakers cited potential violations for false statements. The committee had has reason to believe Mr. Steele made regarding his uh, distribution of information contained in the dossier. Again, another investigation. Uh, I don't uh, take lightly making a referral for criminal investigation, says um, Chuck Grassley. But as I would uh, with any credible evidence of a crime unearthed in the course of our investigation, I feel obliged to pass that information along to the Justice Department for appropriate review. Uh, Their letter cited potential violations of a section of the criminal code pertaining to making false statements or concealing facts. A committee tweet said investigators had reviewed material that revealed significant inconsistencies in statements provided. Provided to authorities. In a written statement, um, Senator Graham 
went a step further and said that he believes a special counsel should review the matter, given how Mr. Steele conducted himself in distributing information contained in the dossier and how many uh, stop signs the DOJ ignored in its use of that document. Again, an ongoing investigation that has now um, sprouted a a criminal investigation uh, to it. Well, in more uh, local news, the Oregon Government Ethics Commission on Friday unanimously voted that there is enough evidence to show former First Lady Sylvia Hayes violated ethics laws uh, 22 times, largely by using her public position to win a paid fellowship and several contracts for her environmental consulting firm between 2011 and 2013. Hayes served as a super lobbyist for private consulting clients who paid her to advocate on green energy. According to the commissioner, Daniel Mason, who is part of the Oregon Government Ethics Commission, Commissioner Nathan Sosa described her actions as a case study and what you are not supposed to do as a public official. For that reason, the statute gives us the authority to levy significant fines, and I think that's what we should do. In fact, she may face fines of up to $100,000. Well, the vote establishes uh, what the commission calls preliminary findings of violation. Hayes can appeal the findings or reach a settlement before the agency issues the final order with penalties. She faces, as I mentioned, up to $110,000 in fines. On top of that, commissioners could propose she pay double the amount of money she received from work acquired as a result of her positions as first lady and policy advisor to Governor Kitzhaber. That could equal hundreds of thousands of dollars, ethics investigator uh, Maria Sheffer says. It's doubtful, but it could. The commission would have to prove that would not have secured the contracts without her public positions, according to the Ethics Commission. In addition to using her position to private, uh, for private gain, she also accepted an unacceptable amount of gifts from people interested in influencing policy and failed to disclose several conflicts of interest, according to the investigation released earlier in the week. Investigators found 23 violations, but commissioners dismissed one of those related to the First Lady's use of a dignitary protection unit, especially the governor's security detail, for non-public business. Commissioners briefly discussed removing one of the conflict of interest counts, but decided not to because Hayes failed to show up or send representatives to respond to the accusations. Hayes and Kitzhaber have been under an ethics investigation since July. They'd been under a federal criminal investigation for more than two years before that, after Willamette Week reportedly reported rather that the first lady or the governor's girlfriend, uh, may have used her position to win several consulting contracts. The scandal eventually prompted the uh, governor to resign from office in February of 2015, led to the uh, former Secretary of State Kate Brown's succession to uh, the this, this seat as governor. Federal prosecutors ultimately filed no charges against the couple, and by the time the federal investigation had concluded, the statute of limitation had run out on any state charges. So in November, the Ethics Commission rejected a proposed settlement with Kitzhaber in which he agreed to pay $1,000 for ethics violations related to conflicts of interest and accepting gifts with value of more than $50 from any one source during the year. A majority of commissioners said they felt the settlement was too lenient. The Ethics Commission is scheduled to reconsider his case next month. A federal judge dismissed all charges against rancher Cliven Bundy, his two sons, and another man on Monday. U.S. District Judge Gloria Navarro cited flagrant prosecutorial misconduct in her decision to dismiss all charges against the Nevada rancher and three others. 
Navarro, on the 20th of December, declared a mistrial in the high-profile Bundy case. It was only the latest stunning development in the saga of the Nevada rancher and served as a repudiation of the federal government. Navarro accused prosecutors of willfully withholding evidence from Bundy's lawyers in violation of the federal Brady Act. Either the government lied or its actions were so grossly negligent as to be tantamount rather to lying. The uh, uh, Brady rule, named after the landmark 1963 Supreme Court case known as Brady versus Maryland, holds that failure to disclose such evidence violates a defendant's right to due process. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Annette Safstrom. She is a seasoned Sunday school teacher, children's ministry leader. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. Again, the second segment of the 5 o'clock hour. I want to encourage you to consider a couple of things in the start of this new year. Experience the legendary land of Israel with teaching pastor Tony Evans and his wife Lois. This coming November for Experience Israel 2018. Now imagine standing in the Sea of Galilee, exploring the remains of Nazareth, visiting Jerusalem, where every stone pathway leads you toward the life of Christ and the story of God's purpose on earth. With gifted musical guests, Anthony Evans and Meredith Andrews, your time in Israel is sure to be rich with spiritual meaning and impact. For details, you can go to kpdq.com or you can call 855 855- Four four eight seventy two twenty six, and book your journey to Israel. Eight five five four four six seventy two twenty six, or perhaps you've been to Israel and you're looking for another kind of experience that will enhance your faith. This coming summer, you can join Alistair Begg and fellow like-minded believers for the Reformation tour and river cruise. You can visit fascinating historical sites that played an integral role in the Reformation, including charming European villages, stately castles and churches and iconic cities like Leipzig, Vienna, and Prague. Your time in Europe will only uh, deepen your love of the Bible and the church. So book your trip today and join Teaching Pastor Alistair Begg for the Reformation Tour and River Cruise from July the 31st through August the 12th. And again, all the details, kpdq.com. And that number is 855-565-5519. Nineteen, two great options for uh, the summer or for the fall to travel uh, in a way that uh, that enhances your faith. Well, special counsel Robert Mueller III has told President Trump's legal team that his office is likely to seek an interview with the president. And that's triggering a discussion among his attorneys about how to avoid a sit down encounter or set limits on that kind of a session, according to. Uh, those familiar with the talks. Mueller raised the issue of interviewing the president during a late December meeting with the president's lawyers, John Dowd and Jay Sekulow. Mueller's deputy, James Quarles, who oversees the White House portion of the special counsel investigation, also attended that meeting. The special counsel's team could interview Trump soon on some limited portion of questions, possibly within the next several weeks, according to a person close to the president who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe internal conversations. This is moving faster than anyone really expected, the person said. Trump is uh, comfortable uh, participating, rather, in an interview and believes it will... um, 
put to rest questions about whether his campaign coordinated with Russia in the 2016 election, the person said. However, the president's attorneys are reluctant to let him sit for open-ended face-to-face questioning without uh, clear parameters, according to two people familiar with that discussion. Since the December meeting, they have uh, discussed whether the president could provide written answers to some of the questions from Mueller's investigators, as President Ronald Reagan did during the Iran-Contra investigation. They've also discussed the uh, obligation of Mueller's team to demonstrate that uh, it could not obtain the information it seeks without interviewing the president. Well, the legal team's internal discussions about how to respond to the request for an interview were first reported um, by NBC News on uh, this morning. Dowd and Seculo declined to comment, but are in talks with um, the Mueller team. In a statement, Ty Cobb, uh, the White House lawyer overseeing the administration's response to the Mueller investigation, said that the White House does not comment on communications with the OSC out of respect for the OSC and its process, uh, referring to the special counsel's office. The White House is continuing its full cooperation in order to facilitate the earliest possible resolution. Well, Cobb had repeatedly said uh, all interviews of the White House personnel by Mueller's office were on schedule to be completed by the end of December or early this year. Well, it's now early this year. On Monday, he said he remains confident that any portion of the investigation related to the president or the White House will wrap up shortly. Mueller and Trump's legal team plan to meet again soon to discuss both the possible terms and substance of the interview, as well as Mueller's timeline for the investigation, according to uh, observers. Trump's lawyers hope to obtain from the special counsel's team a clear idea of the categories of questions that would be posed to the president. For months, the uh, legal team has been uh, searching the conditions under which the president would be required to submit to an interview with the special counsel who's investigating Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. No lawyer, just volunteers their uh, uh, their clients without thinking uh, this, thinking this through, uh, they said, one of the people um, representing the administration. And also, it, it rather has uh, has long been expected that Mueller would seek to interview the president, in part because the special counsel is scrutinizing whether actions he took in office were attempts to blunt the Russia investigation, according to people familiar with the questions. In May, Trump uh, fired FBI Director James Comey after he testified on Capitol Hill that he could not uh, comment on whether there was evidence that Russia colluded with the campaign. The president also dictated a misleading statement later uh, released by his eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., about a meeting with uh, that uh, Trump Jr. had with the Russian lawyer during the president's campaign. A uh, veteran prosecutor said it's unlikely that Mueller would agree to have any witness, even the president, submit a declaration or provide written answers to questions to avoid a sit-down interview. Some experts say a presidential interview could signal that Mueller's investigation into the action is nearly at its end, but they caution that the special counsel might have a different strategy. It would uh, certainly seem that would that they would uh, be close to wrapping up uh, as it relates to the core matters that are in, that they are investigating says the deputy independent counsel who questioned President Bill Clinton in 1998. You would want to uh, know as much as possible before you go to the president. Asked on Saturday if he had agreed to the to be interviewed by Mueller, Trump said that he uh, had nothing to hide, just so you understand. There's been no collusion. There's been no crime. And in theory, everybody tells me I'm not under investigation. Maybe Hillary Clinton is. I don't know, but I'm not, Trump went on to say, speaking to reporters at Camp David. But we have been very open. We could have uh, done it two ways. We could have been very closed and it would have taken years. But, you know, sort of like uh, when you've done nothing wrong, let's be open and get it over with. 
well, he goes on from there. In June, after Comey uh, told a congressional panel that Trump had privately asked him asked for his loyalty, the president said he would be willing to testify under oath to dispute the fired FBI director's claims. One hundred percent, Trump said when asked if he would uh, give a sworn statement to Mueller. Well, sitting presidents have been interviewed by prosecutors in the past. Though courts have urged government investigators to seek such interviews only when they cannot obtain relevant information any other way. And that's what uh, Trump's legal team is now trying to determine, that uh, the information that the Mueller investigation would seek could not be acquired any other way. Whether or not they would agree that that is in fact the case, when or if the questions that remain are made uh, known to the legal representatives. We'll continue to follow that and the several other investigations that move forward. I I sure hope there's energy to do the people's business in Washington as there's so much else going on. We're going to have a break here in just a a minute, but I wanted to remind you that in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. And we're also going to talk about uh, Mr. Awana. Arthur uh, Rohrheim uh, passed away this past uh, uh, several days, and we'll tell you a little bit more about the co-founder of Awana and his vision for children's ministry. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we're going to uh, talk with Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. We'll also let you know about the death of Mr. Awana. Arthur Warheim passed away. He's gone on to his reward, had a significant impact on children's ministry. We'll tell you more about that later this hour, which is brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, members of 20 international organizations that promote a boycott campaign of Israel, many of them affiliated with the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions uh, movement, will be banned from entering the country. That's according to a list published on Sunday by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel. The list was created after Israel's parliament in March approved legislation that would deny entry visa to foreign nationals who publicly back or call for any kind of boycott, economic, cultural, or academic of Israel or its West Bank settlements. BDS, as it's called, again, uh, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, aims to pressure Israel into complying with international uh, law vis-a-vis its policies toward the Palestinians. The movement discourages the purchase of Israeli goods, pressures international companies not to conduct business in Israel, and urges celebrities not to visit or perform in the country. The Israeli, uh, Israeli government say that the boycott campaign actively promotes the country's demise and denies Israel's basic right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state. In recent years, Israel has ramped up efforts to fight against what it sees as an increasing threat. Strategic Affairs Minister Gilad Erdan, he appointed a uh, appointed to um, spearhead the battle against the BDS movement and other such movements, said Sunday that the uh, blacklisting was another step in our work to thwart anti-Israel boycott organizations. Meanwhile, two weeks ago, the U.S. State Department released its list of countries of particular concern, or CPC, countries of particular concern, a compilation of nations that have engaged in or tolerated particularly severe violations of religious freedom. The list contains the same names as last year, Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Pakistan was added to a special watch list of governments or entities that don't meet the requirements of the CPC designation, yet still engage in or tolerated several 
uh, severe religious freedom violations. The CPC list was about six weeks late. That frustrated some religious freedom watchers, including the U.S. Commission on Inter- uh, International Religious Freedom, which is appointed by the federal government to make policy recommendations. The State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom, established nearly 20 years ago under the Clinton administration, is officially tasked with annual reports on the state of religious freedom around the world. Well, the office is responsible for passing along a list of CPCs to the president each year who would determine if the religious freedom violations were egregious enough to merit sanctions against particular nations. Almost right away in 1999, that responsibility of naming the CPCs was shifted to the secretary of state. But it didn't always get uh, get done. A list came out uh, promptly in 1999 and 2000, but was running two months late in 2001, missed in 2002 entirely, and in the wake of 9-11 and the early years of the Iraq War. There was a list in 2003 and 2004, and the first sanctions appeared in 2005. The spotty performances continued. A list was issued in 2006, but not 2007 or 2008, and then in 2009, but not the following four years, 2010, 2012, 13, or 15. Two lists showed up in 16. Well, you sort of get the idea. Pakistan has been given a special category and added to that list. The KRG uh, works with churches and leadership in, An- in Ankawa. Erbil's Christian Enclave made temporarily emergency provisions. Today, some 70,000 to 100,000 Iraqi Christians still remain there. They've been homeless and unemployed for three and a half years. The sudden murderous Islamic State invasion that upended the lives of thousands of families in northern Iraq, mostly Christian and Yazidis, left them with just minutes to flee their homes. Some of them lost their lives. The rest lost everything they owned. The survivors found their way on foot to Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan, the regional government. Uh, There they arrived empty-handed. ISIS had stripped them of vehicles and cash. Even their proof of identity had been seized, along with property, deeds, and other documents of ownership. ISIS has um, uh, offered them, or had offered them, three options. Convert to Islam, pay the uh, jizya tax imposed on non-Muslims living under Islamic law, or run for your lives. Otherwise, they would be shot. They took everything. They looted their homes, their shops, taking everything, even their ID, their papers, their money. The Iraqi Christian plight, as well as that of the smaller Yazidi minority, reflected one disappointment after another, often attributed either to uh, insincerity or massive incompetence on the part of the United States. As human rights lawyer Nina Shea wrote in the Wall Street Journal in September of 2017, since fiscal year 2014, the United States has provided $1.4 billion in humanitarian aid for Iraq, but very little of it has reached the beleaguered Christian and Yazidi communities. When the aid program was established, the Obama administration decided to channel most of it through the United Nations, and most of it disappeared into the bowels of the U.N. bureaucracy. In October, the Trump administration decided it could no longer trust U.N.-backed groups to deliver aid to persecuted Christian minorities in the Middle East. It has decided to take matters into its own hands. Vice President Mike Pence revealed that President Trump had ordered the State Department to stop ineffective relief efforts in the United Nations. Instead, Vice President Pence announced America would provide support directly to persecuted communities through the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. Well, this marked a significant breakthrough. Coalition forces had driven ISIS out of the refugees' hometowns and villages, and rebuilding could begin in earnest. 
One successful non-UN reconstruction effort was already underway under the leadership of Ahmed Khan, an American philanthropist who heads up New York's Zaka Khan Foundation. Khan says his group's success in rebuilding homes for 1,000 Iraqi Christians since June shows the power of individuals against the background of inaction on the part of larger organizations or governments. My whole goal is to inspire other people, churches or mosques or synagogues, to do the same thing we've done. They don't have to do it with us. They can do it themselves. It's very, very easy to get people back in their homes once there are homes to return to. Mindy Bells, who is the author of the best-selling book about Iraqi Christians, uh, they say we are infidels, explained, and I quote, in fleeing ISIS, they gave up everything on hold on, uh, rather to hold on to the one thing that mattered to them, their Christian faith. That gives them courage to begin again, even when to us their future uh, may look hopeless. Let me repeat part of that because it's really very challenging. Uh, she's again is the author of They Say We Are Infidels, and she writes, In fleeing ISIS, they gave up everything to hold on to the one thing that mattered to them, their Christian faith. That gives them the courage to begin again, even when to us their future may seem hopeless. I would love for that to be true of me and for believers all around the world, that they that we would be willing to give up everything in order to hold on to the one thing that mattered most. I hope we're not in a situation in the future where the kinds of choices that they've had to make are pressed upon us. But I do hope that in making choices about how we spend our time in 2018, what our priorities are, how much time we spend in the word, what's really important to us, that we'll make the right decisions, giving up those things in order to hold on to the one thing that matters most. Well, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. And we're also going to tell you about um, Mr. Awana. Arthur Rohrheim has passed away. We'll tell you a bit about his life and legacy as we reflect on the fact that he's gone on to his reward. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, my next guest and her co-author asked the question of those who serve in children's ministry. Are you a children's ministry leader on the edge of burnout? Now, I've done it for many, many years, and I know that feeling. They also asked, do you find yourself working harder and harder to tame the chaos? Well, Mike, uh, Mark DeVries and my guest, Annette Safstrom, they know how you feel. The flash and the fizz can be effective at attracting young families, but without sustainable systems beneath the unforgettable moments, the impact is almost always short-lived. Well, they've written a book, Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions, and in it, they provide a practical resource. You'll learn how to recruit volunteers, and isn't that always an issue? Partner with parents, navigate politics in the church, and care for your own soul instead of frenetically uh, scrambling to do it all yourself. Sustainable Children's Ministry will help you build a ministry foundation that will still be standing long after you have gone. Well, my guest is Annette Safstrom. She is a senior consultant, speaker, and trainer with Ministry Architects, and she served in children's ministry for over 30 years. She was recently director of a rapidly growing children's ministry in Texas, and she's spoken at the Children's Pastors Conference and Group's uh, Kid Men Conference as well. She joins us today to talk about the book. She co-authored, along with uh, Mark DeVries, who is the founder of Ministry Architects, to talk about sustainable children's ministry and explain what that means. Hey, thank you so much for joining us 
today. Hi, thanks for having me. You begin uh, in the introduction to tell a little bit of your story, how you began in children's ministry, which was so similar to to my own story. I'm not involved in children's ministry today, but I started out as a kid myself in ministry. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners a little of your story. Sure. Um, When I was um, eight or nine years old, uh, my parents wanted to go visit this new church, and I remember them telling me, and that it's going to be fun. They have this thing called Children's Church, and it's not going to be boring. It's going to be super fun and super exciting and like a party for Jesus. And so as a little kid, I was so excited. I thought, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be great. Not like the church that I was used to. And so um, that's what happened, and just fell in love with Jesus, fell in love with going to church, fell in love with learning the Bible as a little kid, and learned that... I could experience God for myself as a small child, and I didn't need someone else to be there to do it for me, but I learned to experience the Lord for myself. Your Sunday school teacher approached you, and I think you were about 9 or 10, maybe 11, and asked you to help to come alongside and be involved in children's ministry as a, I'm not sure how you would describe yourself, but you were involved in the leadership side of children's ministry. Right. When I was about 11 years old and I was aging out of the children's ministry, my children's pastor, Miss Jenny, came up to me and she said, Annette, I think you can do this. And she handed me a piece of paper and I looked at it. It was a lesson, a Sunday school lesson. And I thought, oh, what do you mean? She said, I think you can teach kids. She said, I want you to go home and I want you to read over this and I want you to come back next week and you get to lead the kindergartners. And I thought, wow, what? I think about it now. Who, who trusts an 11-year-old to do that? You know, 11-year-olds are, you know, lacking impulse control and have all kinds of ideas and creativity that may not fit into that scenario. But she she said she saw something in me and, and she wanted to teach me how to do it. And so from then, I had always been with kids, and I would meet with Miss Jenny every week, even into grad school, and we would talk about children's ministry and how to minister to kids and how to work with volunteers and how to work with parents, and she really did take the time and invest in me and teach me everything that she was doing. Mm. Now, that developed a love of children's ministry for you, and when you went on to school, um, that was the focus of your, your studies. When you um, had your first job, uh, which you write about in the in the book, uh, it wasn't as successful as you had hoped, and you ran into some of the challenges that many who are involved in children's ministry uh, face. But you, um, unlike many, were not discouraged to the point that you walked away and never came back. Talk about those that early experience as an adult overseeing children's ministry, and what brought you to thinking more deeply about how to sustain uh, children's ministry. Sure. Um, I was um, fresh out of grad school. I had been married a month and I was a part of this very large church and they hired me to be over all of the elementary stuff at this church. And so I came in with lots of different schooling, lots of different training. I was ready to go. I was so excited. Like this was the thing that I was made to do and I was ready to go for it. And I walked in and I expected that this big church would have all these systems for how things should work. And I could turn my creativity right into their systems and we were going to make this thing sing. And I walked in and a couple of weeks in, I realized that this was not going to work, that this, that I was failing miserably. I, I couldn't keep up with anything. I didn't know what was next. I didn't know what was on my task list. And so you've been in children's ministry and you know, there's so many moving parts mm-hmm. to children's ministry. It's not a desk job. It's not a classroom job. It's all of that and so much more. And I was, with all my schooling and all my training, I was still completely unprepared to walk into this ministry. 
And um, I found myself on my supervisor's couch at least once a week having a conversation about why I didn't get something done or why this class was failing or why this thing wasn't working. And it was devastating to me because here I thought this was what the Lord had called me to do. And um, I found myself at one point on probation. And here I was, I thought I was going to be this rock star. And now my job is threatened because I can't keep it together and I can't keep all the pieces moving in the way that they should be. And, um, you know, there were lots of things happening and, and because there were no systems, there was toxicity in the environment and there were just things, unhealthy things happening all around. And I just found myself thinking in that. And, um, after about two and a half years of that, I had to, I stepped back and just found a more administrative job in the church and found some time just to relax and heal and think about, you know, what it is that was missing. And so, um, I ended up um, coming home to have my babies, and then a couple years in, that same church planted a campus right near my house, and I got a call um, asking me to take over the children's ministry, and I said no, because that's hard, and I don't want to do that. Now I have two babies. I don't, I don't want to do that. It's really hard work. And I got off the phone, and I talked to my husband, and he said, Annette, you need to think about that, and you need to pray about that, because I think the Lord's calling you to do that. And I had tears in my eyes, and I went back, and I prayed about it, and I, I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, I went and I had my, quote, interview meeting at the church, and it, it lasted almost five hours because I came in a little overprepared. Um, <laughs> here are the things that I want to do. Here are the things that I won't do. Here are my boundaries. Here's, here are how the systems are going to work here. And so this time I came in with systems and came in with a mission that we want to build a ministry where the volunteers are still here in 20 years and they love what they're doing because they're not burned out. They know where they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to lead, and what's going to happen while they're there. And they're going to know when they're hitting the mark and when they win. And after all of that, um, I came in to this brand new campus. Um, I think we started with about 200 people, which is great. After Easter, we had 800 people, and they stayed. And so here I was thinking I had all these systems, and they were going to be great. And they were, but they weren't enough. And so... Um, the Lord brought me some great help, and we worked really hard to get these systems in place and make sure everybody was trained, everybody had been communicated with, everyone had all their materials and things like that. But it took, it took several months to get all of that in place. One of the things you write in the book is that um, the fact that you had to experience some setbacks, uh, this book can help equip others who are working in children's ministry so they don't have to repeat the same mistakes. Talk about what's so different about sustainable children's ministry, what it is and how it differs from uh, what you had done before. Um, Sustainable children's ministry doesn't mean that we're not going to have urgent tasks, but it means that we've got a system for how we handle each aspect of ministry. And in the book, we list out what kinds of systems you need to have. Um, Because if we don't have a system, everything is urgent. Like my DVD player in the threes class wasn't working, and I didn't know that for three weeks. So all of my volunteers were frustrated and thought I didn't care, but Mm. I didn't know. So we had to come up with a system. So how do I know what equipment's working and what's not? It's simple, and it's boring, and it's foundational, but when we don't do those things, I need to know if, if that lesson was a flop, I need to know how do I get feedback from my volunteers? Because what's going to happen is next year, I might try to use that lesson again. And those volunteers are going to walk in, roll in their eyes like, we tried this and it didn't work. I don't know why we're not doing it again. And so having a feedback system is just a good example for 
how we find out what's working and what's not can keep us from having those issues with people and can keep us from having those issues in the classroom. It affects kids, it affects parents, it affects volunteers, and it really affects the whole church. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, Sustainable Children's Ministry, from last-minute scrambling, and we've all done that if we've been involved in children's ministry, to long-term solutions. And fewer of us have experienced the benefit of these kinds of uh, solutions. Again, Sustainable Children's Ministry, my guest is Annette Safstrom. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and my guest is Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry from Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. She's a senior consultant, speaker, and trainer with Ministry Architects, and she served in children's ministry for over 30 years, including as director of a, a rapidly growing children's ministry in Texas. She speaks at a variety of children's ministry events, including the Children's Pastors Conference Group's Kidmen Conference. After uh, leaving Bible College with a certification in children's ministry, she earned her bachelor's in psychology from Texas A&M and a master's in research psychology from Southern Methodist University. Uh, she and her uh, family uh, live in, and I don't see that here, so I'll just leave that alone. <laughs> anyway, she's here to talk with us about the book she co-authored with uh, Mark DeVries. Well, let's start at where uh, we should start if we're interested in sustainable children's ministry at our church. Where do you begin? Um, you really want to begin with um, taking a look at what your pressure points are, because they're going to tell you what systems you need to put into place right away. Um, typically, when we work with a church at ministry architects, it takes almost two years to implement all of those systems and get them humming. But when you say, okay, I'm feeling, I'm really feeling pressure around volunteers, then let's look at that first. Um, or I'm really feeling pressure around events. Nobody's coming to my events, which is probably a communication issue. Um, so where are you feeling the pressure and start with that? Okay. I, I don't, my volunteers are not doing what they're supposed to do. It sounds like volunteer training is something that we need to look at. Do we have a rhythm for our volunteer training? Why is no one coming to our training meetings or is there another way to train volunteers that we haven't thought of yet? Is there a way to train them without coming to a meeting? So, um, wherever you're feeling the pressure, that's where you should start. And then beyond that, if you look in the book, there's just a list of different kinds of systems mm-hmm. that you want to have in place. Um, communication, recruiting, training, evaluating curriculum, um, facilities, things, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes when you uh, hear about or think about systems in children's ministry, you think about a large church with lots of resources, lots of potential volunteers. Mm-hmm. Does sustainable children's ministry, is it, uh, is it usable in a smaller church setting as well, where you have, a f- you have fewer uh, families, fewer children, uh, and the possibility of fewer volunteers? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because I think there is a misunderstanding mm-hmm. that if you're a small church, first of all, people think if you're a small church, you don't need those systems because I don't need a directory because I know everyone. Or I don't need a check-in system because I know everybody. But what happens when that visitor comes and they stand behind someone to pick up their kid and they see you, no check, no nothing, no name tag, anything, just give the kid to someone. They don't know that you know them. And so that visitor sees oh, they're just going to give my kid to anybody. I don't know what, you know, I don't know that my kid is safe. Things like that, there are very simple ways. You don't need a giant database, but an Excel spreadsheet is a great way to keep track of your volunteers, their birthdays, your kids and their parents and their allergies. 
just a, there are simple systems that even a small church can use and will save you lots of time. Mm. Well, let's talk about volunteers, because I can remember so often uh, in Sunday school, the subject comes up, we need volunteers for children's ministry. And the assumption is, OK, every parent, um, they have an obligation, even if they don't have much interest and everyone else rolls their eyes. And it, it becomes this moment where you can hear a pin drop. Uh, you've described some of the things that not only attract, but retain volunteers. Talk a, a little bit about the challenge of finding people who will work in children's ministry and then having systems that motivate them and, and give them the desire to be there uh, years from uh, from the start date. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of times the problem is in the way we ask, because as a children's ministry leader, we feel like we're asking for help just for ourselves. And I think once we've got to change that perspective and the way that we ask, um, when we say, oh, please, would you just help this one time? I, I'm not going to be able to make it this weekend if you don't show up. Nobody wants to be part of that because it sounds like you're jumping on a sinking ship and it sounds like it's not going to be fun. And, it, you know, you're just going to endure for an hour and hopefully survive and never be asked again. <laughs> but we know if you say yes one time, you're going to get asked again and again and again. Um, and so volunteers feel like they're not accomplishing anything, especially if they're thrown in at the last minute or they're not given good direction. Um, and one of the biggest things is we don't tell them how, they're, how to be successful. We don't tell them how we're measuring success. And so if as the leader, I'm measuring success by um, every kid can, can say what they learned when they leave, then that's what I need to tell my leaders. Okay, if every kid needs to be able to recite the main point back to you. Or if success is kids leave with smiles on their faces and they want to come back next week, I need to be telling my volunteers. That's what success is. Otherwise, our volunteers are coming in. They're doing the best they can, and they really want to do a good job, but they don't know how they win, so they're constantly frustrated because they don't know. Mm-hmm. You have a um, chapter—go oh, oh, ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You have a chapter titled Children's Ministry is Family Ministry and a Recipe for Turning Parents into Partners. Uh, for many parents, it's a relief to have someplace to send the kids during the Sunday morning service. Uh, others want to be uh, very much involved. Talk about that recipe for turning parents into partners, whatever that might look like for any given family. You know, I think it is different for everyone, but mm-hmm. I think it, it all comes down to relationship. Not every parent needs to be a volunteer in your ministry. Not every parent is wired to be with kids. There are lots of ways to help out in kids' ministry without being in a classroom as well. And so as much as we can communicate with parents, what's happening in the classroom. And that doesn't have to be a belabored thing. Um, I've talked to lots of children's ministers and and encouraged them to give your parents a calendar. Let them know, hey, if you're only coming once a month, you're only getting this. If you miss this week, this is what you're missing. You know, send out an email and say, here's what we're doing this weekend. So that when parents wake up on Sunday morning and they think, oh, I'd really just like to drink my coffee and hang out at the house today, they remember, oh, this is what my kid is missing instead of we got to get dressed, we got to get to church, we got to do all this. Engaging parents in what's happening and then um, giving, offering them some shared experiences outside of Sunday school. I have seen the most success in people experiencing God as a family, and that gives them something to talk about. Just like when we go on vacation with our family, we come home and we talk about, oh, this happened and this happened, and we all experienced this together, and that's a big bonding thing for families. It's the same with our faith. 
let's experience something together. Let's go, let's go on a prayer walk together. Let's experience worship together as a family sometime. Then we have something to talk about. And it's more than a parent saying, what did you learn this week? Mm-hmm. And the kids saying, oh, I don't know. And everybody being frustrated and thinking the children's ministry is not doing their job. In some churches, the children's ministry uh, coordinator, leader, volunteers feel like perhaps they're on the low rung of the ladder. <clears throat> you have a chapter titled Beyond the Victim, Swimming in the Deep Waters of Church Politics, which can be something of a challenge. Give us some encouragement and insight. I, it is such a common place for children's ministry people to be. And I have to go back a little bit to the personality type of children's ministry people. And I'm stereotyping and I'm generalizing. But I will say that probably 90% of the children's ministry people I've worked with kind of fall into that, I'm going to take on everything myself and I'm going to get it done myself kind of mode. And they're not the Pied Piper type that we see in youth ministry that wants to be front and center. Most children's ministry leaders want to get it done and want to do a good job. And so that leads to feeling like they're not seen and feeling like their cause is not validated among the rest of church staff. And um, I found myself in that place and I found myself, I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, nobody knows, nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows how hard this is. All these people are working around this big church. They got all their things going on and they don't know how the, how the struggle feels in children's ministry and how hard we're working. And it just, it came to me like, who do I know? Who do I have relationship with outside of the children's ministry? I was so buried in the tasks that I, I wasn't putting forth an effort to let anybody know who I was, what our mission was, what we were doing. And so I started, I started making friends in the rest of the church staff. And I just started being myself and investing in relationships. And what happened from that was I grew into become what I would call a champion for the ministry. And I would talk about what was happening and what we were doing and what our successes were and what our challenges were. And then when I would get in a staff meeting and I would need something, people would be ready to help. Mm. But when I stayed in my little office and worried about my little thing and nobody else, there was really nothing I could do. And so I would encourage people to get out of your office, make some friends, get to know people and let them get to know you, hear what their struggles are and see what we can do together. Well, the book is titled Sustainable Children's Ministry from Last Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. Great resource for those who are are laboring in the ministry. And I especially appreciated the dedication uh, to the book. And one of the things you say is you can't even imagine the reward for those who minister to children on a regular basis in a, in a congregation. It's such uh, tremendous work. Annette Safstrom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. And again, Annette is the co-author with Mark DeVries, the book Sustainable Children's Ministry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about Sunday school teaching, and I mentioned last week that I'm third generation Sunday school teacher. My grandmother was an excellent Sunday school teacher. In fact, uh, men and women who are now, of course, middle aged, uh, talk about uh, what a great teacher she was. They remember um, being in her classroom in Sunday school many, many years ago. My mother was also a Sunday school teacher, and she followed in my grandmother's footsteps. And much like Annette, my previous guest, I started out uh, as a, I, I probably wasn't 11 as she was, but I was probably 12, 13 when I began 
first helping and then becoming a Sunday school teacher uh, on my own. It's it's a real uh, blessing to serve in that way, and I'm so grateful for that heritage and history. But I wanted to mention that uh, Mr. Awana, Arthur uh, Rohrheim, has passed away. You might uh, recognize the name Awana because Arthur Rohrheim uh, was the individual who uh, passed away at 99 years old. He proved the power of kids' ministry. He got millions going to church on uh, weeknights. He has gone on to his reward. Well, if you've ever played in Game Square, memorized John 316 with hand motions or scored prizes with Awana Bucks. I was never in Awana, so I never had that experience. Uh, you have the late Arthur Royheim to thank. Well, this Chicago youth minister who co-created the Awana program and served the organization for over 70 years uh, passed away on Friday at age 99. Well, beyond the millions who participated in Awana, Warheim reshaped evangelical church life in America. He introduced more rigorous and scripture-centered children's ministry. He popularized church programming on weeknights. Uh, as Awana's co-founder, longtime executive director, and president emeritus, he saw the organization grow from a weekly club at his church on Chicago's north side to 47,000 churches from 100 denominations, gathering more than 3.7 million participants a week. Uh, Rohrheim uh, would say, uh, I've never found the word retirement in the Bible. And he continued to advise the organization and visit its uh, Streamwood, Illinois headquarters well into his final years. He was proud of how, and I'm quoting, God chose to work through an ordinary, untrained man like me. Since over his decades of leadership, he never earned a seminary degree or took a formal training in curriculum or development. No other Christian youth organization has done more to reach the youth of our world than Awana. That's a quote from Robert Leitner, Dallas Theological Seminary Professor Emeritus, in response to Rohrheim's 2010 autobiography, rather, Mr. Awana. In the 1930s and 40s, at a time when churches rarely offered activities for kids beyond Sunday school, Northside Gospel Center senior pastor Lance Doc Latham enlisted Rohrheim to lead a weekly club for children. They established a biblical foundation with their early instruction while offering fun activities and incentives especially designed for young minds. Well, according to his biography, Rohrheim then began to conceive many of the features that distinguish Awana clubs and youth programs, curriculum handbooks, uh, outreach events that appeal to non-church children, a system of awards to motivate handbook completion, uniforms, and a game square to capture children's interests. He eventually named the program Awana based on its um, key verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, approved workmen are not ashamed, Awana. Well, with over 500 kids in attendance each week, Rohrheim and Latham saw the opportunity to expand the model and established Awana as a national organization back in 1950. The parachurch ministry expanded internationally in 1972, first to Bolivia, and now operates in 100 countries and 30 languages. Rohrheim said, God showed me that children, um, children of the world overall uh, have the same needs. They need Christ's redemption. They need adults to love them and that he could use Awana to meet the needs of their hearts. In 2017, Christianity Today cover story featured the Awana ministry model and how it has evolved in the 21st century, noting that Rohrheim's involvement in the program's origins as far back as 1933. He went on to serve 42 years as, as executive director and seven as president. Many of today's Christian leaders acknowledge the impact that Awana and Rohrheim himself had on their spiritual lives. Uh, Willow Creek Community Church senior pastor Bill Hybels, who came to faith at an Awana camp Rohrheim led, says, I know that I would never be where I am today if it hadn't been for art, challenging me so many years ago.
Another Dan Darling, vice president for communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, says, sad to hear of the death of Art Rohrheim. His idea to entertain kids in a way that would gain an audience for the gospel became a worldwide ministry with tremendous influence. My life and millions of others were impacted by Awana. Rohrheim's wife, Winnie, nicknamed Mrs. Awana, died in 2015. They had two children, four grandchildren, 10 great-grandchildren, and three great-great-grandchildren. The family has set up a tribute site at artrohrheim.org. And by the way, the last name is spelled R-O-R-H-E-I-M. And again, that website, that tribute site, artrohrheim.org. Granddaughter Carrie Beth Gwaltney uh, remembered Rohrheim, who she called Paco, uh, in a uh, Facebook post in which she wrote, Our stories are innumerable, but here's just one. Paco, again, her grandfather, said he could hear the songs of heaven in his last few months of his life. He even created a songbook and said he could point to the songs and hear the music, she wrote. He said he could hear these songs from heaven. I'm so glad that our father in heaven and the old rugged cross. Well, he's not just hearing them now. He's participating again. Um, Arthur Rohrheim, the father of Awana, or really the co-father, uh, uh, died of, at 99 years old. Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week's guests uh, on two, well, tomorrow, actually, Pastor Rich Jones is going to join me. He's going to come in studio, which I so appreciate. He's clear out at Hillsborough Calvary Chapel, but he's coming to the studio and we're going to continue a conversation we began before Christmas on the significance of uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And with the political firestorm that uh, rose when President Trump announced that the United States was going to actually do what every president for the last several decades has promised to do, and that was to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move the embassy there. Uh, Pastor uh, Jones made some comments about the biblical significance of that move. So we're going to take some time to really look at what the scriptures say and the significance of those events in light of uh, headlines uh, that we see today. On Wednesday, we're going to talk with Paul Kent's He is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. And while it may sound a bit awkward to talk about a book of pictures on Oswald Chambers' life, it really tells an interesting story, giving details that you might not otherwise um, appreciate or have access to. So we're going to walk our way through Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. It's published by Discovery House and really is a fascinating volume if you are a Um, An admirer of his work, if you've uh, been familiar with his devotional, you might want to pick that up and learn more about him. And I think you'll also be fascinated to learn more about his wife as well. On Thursday, my guest will be Anthony Davenport. The uh, book is titled Your Score, An Insider's Secrets to Understanding, Controlling, and Protecting Your Credit Score. We're hearing a lot these days about our credit score, whether or not the information that these three major agencies have on us is well protected is another issue we've been thinking about. But we're going to talk about what the credit score actually means. How do they arrive at it? Uh, how do you determine whether or not it's accurate? If there are problems, what do I do? And how is that credit score used? Now, you might think if I'm trying to buy a house or get a credit card, that's the only time that it's relevant. But if you're uh, looking to be admitted into some universities, if you're looking for a job, they can also check the credit score and make Consider that in determining whether or not to take you on. So Anthony Davenport will join us 
on Thursday to talk about that. Again, his book is titled Your Score, An Insider's Secret to Understanding, Controlling, and Protecting Your Credit Score. And he refers to himself as an insider because that is the position he once held. And we're going to uh, talk with uh, some of my co-workers, Crystal Thornton, who is part of the uh, afternoon team on our sister station, The Fish, Kat Taylor, who's a midday host on our sister station, The Fish, uh, Fish rather, Summer Shore, who's on the promotion team for all the stations here. We're going to talk about Thrive, A Girl's Night Out. It's the event that we are all together um, uh, promoting and encouraging you to attend. If you have questions, you'll have an opportunity to hear from the three of them, and I'll chime in as well about what Thrive uh, is offering and why you should consider coming and bringing a girlfriend with you. So they're going to be joining me on Thursday uh, afternoon as well. So I hope you'll plan to, uh, uh, to listen in. Well, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, uh, tomorrow on the program, Pastor Rich Jones, he'll probably be with me for a full hour, and we'll be talking about the biblical significance of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. So I hope you will join us. Well, have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.